Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Co, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Co. Welcome to Dupes and Co with me, Nana Aquila. I'm informed, Michelle. Now, you're not seeing things. We do have two instead of three panellists tonight. It's something that uh, we're trialling. Oh, it's perfectly normal on my show because that's how I do it. They're just copying me. Uh, so let us know what you think. Tonight, my panel is Conservative commentator Alex Dean and also Jeevan Sander and economist at King's College London. And as ever, I also want to know what your thoughts are. You can always get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk or tweet me at GB News. So, five candidates are left in the race to be the next leader of the Conservative Party and, by default, the next Prime Minister. So, let's get an update from the political editor, Darren McCaffrey, who's actually in Westminster this evening. Right, Darren, so, um, this is quite an interesting moment because uh, they, we're going to lose one candidate. Who... What do you think? What, what, what do you think the result will be at eight? Yeah, we are going to lose one candidate, almost certainly Tom Tuchenhart. He, this afternoon, saying he's not naive to think he's going to get through uh, to the next round, uh, but insistent he wasn't going to pull out. That was slightly earlier on uh, today. So he is going to go out. I think, in some ways, that's the least interesting part. The most interesting bit is where Suella Braverman, who got knocked out at the end of last week, where her votes go to around 30 MPs backed her. Now, in essence, up until now, there's been a thought process that they would almost all, as she has, go to the Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, who was sat next to the Prime Minister uh, today. I think in many regards, though, what may well happen is that some of those MPs, and this is the really interesting bit, just how many, may well back, can be bad knock. Now, if, and I say it's a big if, there is a substantial number of those MPs who do back actually bad enough. That means that this race really is genuinely uh, wide open and that there's a real proper battle in many ways for that second place. And I say second place because it is probably almost certain that Rishi Sunak, the former Chancellor, will get into the final two. It is a proper battle at the moment between Truss Mordant and Badenoch about who takes that other place in the final two. As you say, voting is underway. Uh, we're expecting that to wrap up in just under an hour's time. We'll get a result from Sir Graham Brady at around 8pm. And then there'll be another fourth round vote uh, tomorrow with they're hoping the final two decided by Wednesday afternoon. That's interesting. So I, I'm thinking, I think um, Liz trusted very well yesterday, in my view. I thought she did, did a very good performance. I wasn't impressed with Rishi at all. There might, there might, be, a, there might be some strange thing happening. Perhaps he won't get into the final two. But uh, there's also currently a vote of no confidence in the government. Uh, that's uh, going on, uh, called by the Labour government, uh, Labour Party. What's happening there? Yeah, really interesting, this, isn't it? The, the Labour Party called for a vote of no confidence in the government. The government initially denied it and then decided, actually, you know what, we'll table our own motion of confidence in the government, which Boris Johnson in the last hour has been setting out about why the party, why Parliament should have confidence in the government, though, of course, irrespective of that, he is resigning as Prime Minister in, what, six weeks' time. 
Is the government going to win this? You bet they are. They've got a nearly 80-seat majority and they are absolutely determined not to see a general election. But if you like your politics, it's been a pretty entertaining uh, hour in Parliament. Uh, lots of noise, uh, lots of interventions, uh, lots of the rough and tumble of politics, where the Speaker constantly reminding MPs to moderate the language. You saw a very bullish Boris Johnson essentially setting out his reasons for confidence, which is what he would argue his record in government, uh, whether that be getting Brexit done, whether it be trying to tackle the pandemic in a pretty effective way, or indeed the support that the government has shown to Ukraine. At one point he said he may well be popular, more popular on the streets of Kyiv than he is in Kensington. Uh, meanwhile, though, for the Labour opposition, who frankly, of course, argue they want to see a general election, though I'm not entirely convinced they actually do. Uh, Keir Starmer insisting that MPs only need to read the resignation letters of those dozens of frontbenchers who resigned, what, a matter of weeks ago to try and force Boris Johnson's uh, resignation. He says uh, that should be evidence enough that Boris Johnson needs to go. No, not rather on the 6th of September. As I say, it's all politics, bit of parliamentary theatre, quite a lot of fun. In the end, though, not going to really make any iota of a difference. What it does mean, though, and he's taken an intervention from Jeremy Corbyn uh, and Boris Johnson will be joining uh, the former Labour leader on the backbenches in the weeks to come, is that this is probably not the last because we probably will go to Prime Minister's Question Time on Wednesday, though that's not guaranteed. One of the last times we will see Boris Johnson at the dispatch box. And as I say, for people who like the fun in politics, I suspect he may well be sorely missed, at least for that reason. Well, he's on very good form today. Darren McCaffrey, thank you very much. Darren, he's out there. In Westminster, of course, we'll find out the vote uh, at 8 o'clock. Who, who will be the person that uh, disappears from that leadership uh, election? So if you watched the debates between the candidates over the weekend, that was your last chance to see them all in action, uh, because tomorrow's debate has been cancelled after both Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss so decided did well they didn't the debate. Uh, joining me uh, today is Alex Dean and also uh, Steve Jeevan Sander. I, I almost called you Stephen because you said it's like Stephen Juven, let's start with you then. Uh, what did you make of the debates? Who, 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 in your view, did a good job? I think yesterday the Labour Party won in that Conservative leadership debate. You saw the Conservative candidates ripping each other to pieces. <clears throat> You'll see those clips coming out time and time again, being attacking Rishi Sunak for being out of touch and too rich. Rishi Sunak attacking his opponent's economic plans. We just remember something else as well. We face a huge set of crises in this mm. country. A cost of living crisis once in a lifetime. We have a trading relationship with Northern Ireland not let settled and our constitution is in, is in tatters. Our union is under threat. And yesterday I didn't hear anything from any of the major candidates about that. We heard these huge tax cuts from some but won't help those at the bottom. A little bit from Kemi Badenoch, what to do for those on low incomes. There's also no plan here to really get Brexit done either. So I think really, fundamentally what the country was looking for, they didn't see last night. It hasn't been very edifying, as you said. And also pulling out the Sky News debates, I think, was a shame. They should have torn themselves up to scrutiny. They want to be prime minister of this mm, country. Exactly. They should absolutely do so. Well, I think they actually made Boris Johnson look good. Because at least he would stand up and hold his hand up to scrutiny. Whereas these, these well, guys don't even like the sound of it. Penny Morden, I mean, she's come across as a bit of a wet fish, hasn't she, in a way? If you watched the uh, Prime Minister speaking in the no-confidence debate mm. that's been happening as we came on air, you will have heard some of his supporters on his benches cheering more, more, and one had the sense they didn't just mean in that debate. Yep. They were supporting their man, and I thought that was actually a real moment in, in Parliament. But Jeevan's um, got a point, you know, about these uh, debates. The point being, you know, you expose yourself to blue-on-blue -blue rifts and you expose all of these attack lines and you expose internal differences 
to an external audience, and it can be very unattractive. As I was watching the debate, I thought to myself, rather along the lines that Jeevan was suggesting, you know, coming soon to a Labour billboard near you is some of the stuff that was being said in that debate. But I'll tell you what else didn't happen. Um, Jeevan set out some of the things that, if you don't mind me saying, from a broadly left-of-centre perspective, you might like to see discussed. I thought there were some things missing from a broadly right-of-centre perspective, mm. too. A lot of people in the country will want, for example, migration, the difference between legal and Im illegal migration uh, discussed. And these candidates didn't really go near that either. And I think, in part, that's because last night's, the last debate, was basically people trying to avoid going wrong too badly. Mm -hmm. Because the risk of dropping a clangor and, and the harm that might do them in setting votes back was far more significant than the potential gains that you get from doing really well and perhaps swinging one or two votes your way. So they were all about playing safe in the last debate. So my frank answer to your question, who won the debate, is they weren't trying to. They were trying to avoid being seen as having lost most. But that's not good enough. I mean, that's not good enough. They need to be able to be held to account and to be scrutinised. And I think that them pulling out, those who pulled out, um, showed themselves that... that in, I mean, when, when it was... I don't party, agree on that, actually. No, but when it was Partygate... OK, so Boris Johnson, yeah, Partygate, Partygate, he, he faced scrutiny from every single TV channel. He went on there and spoke and, and tried to explain and tried to, I suppose, justify himself or whatever it was. But at least he was open to, to, to questioning. When Keir Starmer... Uh, was being questioned about Beergate, I can remember very clearly him saying, yes, Beth, we agreed that we, we'd do a question from you and another one. He did three questions and then couldn't, didn't do any more. Now, I want these candidates to say what they are and I want to hear them answer questions about what they're going to do with the economy. Well, they didn't answer those questions. And also for them, I think Alex has a point as well around kind of what happens and you win. Tom Tijan Hartcourt in the polling won the first debate. He came second in last night's debate. Oh, he and it looks last. like it's not going to give him no. any, any way forward. But I do agree they should be standing there putting forward their plans. It's also quite a shame they're not. I'm also quite concerned, given the situation this country faces, this is not easy times. Everyone's feeling it at home. I think anyone sat there at home going, you know what, now I feel better about my energy bills. Now I feel better about being food mm. on the table. And we also have to wait now until September to get a new prime minister. Remember that October price cap rise is going to come in, another 50%, we think, maybe on energy bills. £3,000, it was £1,200 not too long ago that's going to really hit people. And again, tonight, those people that are home struggling, and that's not just those on low incomes, mm. it's those on middle incomes, so nothing. Mm. Well, there's 400 quid coming in in August for everybody. Yeah, although the government seems to have been having some trouble connecting the money with the people who need it, uh, which mm. you, you might think after um, an unprecedented series of government handouts should be a bit easier than, uh, than they're finding it. But the reason I was disagreeing with you about uh, not having another debate, I mean, of course, there is no... Um, Jeevan was talking about our constitution being challenged. There's nothing in our constitution that obliges political parties to have these kinds of debates before their leaders are um, elected by their parliamentary members. We can discuss whether or not they're a good idea, and, of course, um, they're a relatively recent creation. But I, for a number of reasons, I, mean, I don't think we would have learnt much from another uh, debate, uh, apart from, you know, perhaps a few more attack lines the Labour Party would then go on and use um, about the candidates. But moreover, let's just be pragmatic about it. Much of the Westminster bubble today has been obsessed with this idea that Tom Tugendhat was going to drop out, give his endorsement to some... I mean, he's a runner, dignified race, and I respect the man, but clearly he's going to come last in this next round. And there was a lot of conversation about if he dropped out and endorsed somebody, it might help him in his agenda rather than going into the next round and, and coming last as people expect him to. And if he did that, and then, of course, you get somebody else knocked out in this vote tonight, then you're down to three, and that makes a mockery of the format that was set up with Sky. So... I thought it kind of made sense not to have it anyway. 
Mm. Why not have three? Though we've had three leadership debates before. We had it between the parties. Yeah. yeah, but there's also three candidates who should be setting out different economic visions. If they have those different economic visions, now we think of kind of Liz Truss and Penny Mordaunt being perhaps slightly to the right of Rishi Sunak. They should come out and say it, and they should also come out and also talk about the squaring the circle that I find very difficult to square because these candidates, all of them, have said, by the way, we want to lower taxes, we want to lower borrowing. And the case of Penny Morden, she also says she wants to spend more money. I'm not quite sure how those things add up. Well, it's also, also not talked, where the public is either. The public wants spending on their public services. She also talked about uh, putting regular spending on the sort of government credit card, which was a bit silly, I thought. I think, look, I, I think it was important and it is important that they did this. Because, you know, there was this whole vision that sure. Penny Mordaunt was amazing and she's the front runner. And then I think in these debates, it, she was kind of exposed as someone who, who didn't really have much substance. Okay. As I can see. And Tom Tugan had as well. He, all he kept saying, talked about was serving. So he didn't have much substance either. I think he might then, have been in the army. Did you hear that? Yes, I reckon I think, it might, it might have been. And, and he was on the front yeah. line, not the front line, yeah. obviously, in the cabinet, but in Afghanistan. I mean, yeah. he just kept going on about it. And the more I saw, the more I saw it was a very smug... Uh, very uh, shallow. Yeah. It was, and, and I think for us as the public, we deserve to know. So, sure, but the thing is, the public at this point are not the electorate. The electorate at this point are Tory members of uh, Parliament. And they are, I, I dare say, they're not going to really have their minds changed much. But I mean, sure, have a, have a TV debate. But, you know, how many do we need? I mean, why, we're going to have five, three, five, why not seven? We're going to have three a day. I mean, there comes a point when you say, okay, the, the electorate concerned, MPs in the House, have got the broad picture that you want. You could, for argument's sake, do these rounds in a single day. You know, knock one out, down to five. Knock another one out, down to four. Knock another one out. Well, you could get, you could do it all in one day. They might be having a bad day, though, so I don't think that would work well. You know, if you're having a bad day, that day you might not show yourself, but the next day you might be better. And I think over time as well, you're exposed further and then you have to continue to stand up against, uh, you know, sort of prove that you mean what you say. I'm just so, making the point that the timetable is flexible. I agree with you. I don't agree with you that you said that the audience is actually the MPs. It is, but the MPs represent their constituents. And if their constituents have a feeling that they don't want this particular person... The MPs aren't just there to just do whatever they want. They're there to do what we want. They are our servants. No, In this they, are, case, they are elected no. and then they're elected to do their best. They are not elected to be delegates doing whatever their well, constituents well, tell them. Uh, well, I think... It's not right. I, I think they are, in a sense, because ultimately, if they don't do it, they won't be voted back in. Yes, so, next time. Not now. Yeah. Next time. Well, that's all, but that's all part of the picture. You can't just say, oh, well, I'll do it. I'll do, I'll do what I want for, like, ten months, and then in the last month, I'll do what you want. We, there'll be a consistency. They'll be listening to their constituents and they'll also be getting the energy and the vibe of what people are thinking. I think also, to be fair, the Conservative MPs will also want to see who they think is going to be the next or best Prime Minister. And part of that sure. will be having to have the cut and thrust of the debate, not necessarily just in, internally, but with the Labour Party. More broadly, I think the Conservative Party has got a problem mm. in that they built, or rather Boris Johnson built this coalition of kind of low-tax, low-spend traditional Conservatives and those people who actually want more spending in their local area. Mm. And fundamentally, he married those two together. He won a, a huge majority. And all of a sudden, the low-tax, low-spend side is starting to figure out they don't want to be or spending as much on the other side. And it's very difficult to resolve those contradictions. And I think this entire, these, these leadership candidates are struggling to square that circle and also be appealing then to the country at large come the next election. That's very interesting you say that. So in your view, very briefly then, finally... Um, who do you think's approach is, uh, in terms of economics, who do you think has a better economic vision? In my view, it's Liz Truss. I believe you can have low tax, you can lower tax in certain areas, and the areas she's talked about lowering, I believed in. And I believe that uh, uh, Rishi Sunak has gone too far. I think he put out too much money in the economy, and then ultimately it created inflation. 
And now, in order to get out of it, he's thinking he's going to tax a lot of people. But I say, if you increase the tax burden, sometimes you actually decrease the tax take. And that's my view. But what's yours? My view is actually none of them have got the right answer. Right. Look, this is a once-in-a-lifetime cost of living crisis. We had this once-in-a-century pandemic. We shut down the entire economy and we got through it. We should be able to get through this cost-of-living crisis as well. But what we've seen is kind of then pull back and say, actually, not willing to deal with the scale of the challenge ahead. In terms of the inflationary aspect, look, like... Drishi Sunak had the £15 billion cost of living package. It adds 0.1% to inflation. The inflationary impact of the spending of cost of living packages just isn't very high. And I think all of them should be focused on, particularly, yes, the most vulnerable in this country, but also those in the middle who are also struggling as well, who I think sometimes we do forget. And by mm. the way, I'm not opposed to tax cuts at all, but also kind of marry that up with benefits. And on the fuel duty side, look, it helps a bit, but actually helps those with bigger cars as well and doesn't help right. those getting buses. So, like, let's target them properly. That's true, very true. Well, what do you think? Let's uh, find out what you've been saying. Uh, let's see. What have we got? Uh, have we got any emails out here? People saying anything? Oh, well, right. keep your thoughts. They are coming, so keep them coming at GB News or you can uh, also send me an email, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Across England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. This is GB News. Welcome back. I'm Nana Akwea. This is Jubes & Co. Uh, we're live here on GB News, on TV, online and on digital radio. Tonight, my panel is Conservative commentator Alex Dean and also Jeevan Sander, an economics uh, um, economist at uh, King's College London. Right, now, Prince Harry, he's been addressing the United Nations this afternoon to mark Nelson Mandela Day. The prince, with his wife, Meghan Markle, flew into New York to speak to, at a general assembly about Nelson Mandela's legacy, poverty and climate change. As we sit here today, our world is on fire. Again. And these historic weather events are no longer historic. More and more, they are part of our daily lives. And this crisis will only grow worse unless our leaders lead. Unless the countries represented by the seats in this hallowed hall make the decisions, the daring, transformative decisions that our world needs to save humanity. These decisions may not fit with the agendas of every political party. They may invite resistance from powerful interests. But the right thing to do is not up for debate. And neither is the science. Well, Harry might have views on climate change, but why should he be listened to? After all, he's not an expert. What do you think? I'm going to start with you, Alex. I, mean... I think that um, once upon a time, royalty's influence in Britain was felt in many different aspects of society and needed quite a broad range of royals to undertake different parts of public duty, such that even down to quite minor royals held important offices of state, not just with charities, but you know, meaningful executive uh, roles and, and uh, their appearances were given great weight. You've seen in recent time a kind of shrinking of the monarchy due in part to events which required them to do this, where they moved to a kind of spine. They had the monarch, her heir, his heir, and in due time, his heir. And almost everyone outside of that very narrow spine, the people that you see in the tight balcony shots, don't get that much airtime. And here, I'm afraid, I think you see another example of why that's right, because people go off-piste and they go off-piste and indulge themselves in agendas that uh, may or may not reflect what Her Majesty and Her Majesty's government, after considered positions, determine that they want to do. Now, this is not stating a new thing about Prince Harry. I dare say that Her Majesty and Her Majesty's government did want him to appear on Oprah and slag them off. But, you know, he did. So I don't think this is the most extreme thing Prince Harry has done. You do have to question why they'd give him that platform. 
But I suppose there's always going to be a willing audience for a uh, someone who's willing to kick against the establishment that's given him everything, isn't there? Yeah, spoilt brat. What do you think? I don't really understand why we're talking about this. We have the hottest day in 50 years. There are, we think, 10,000 people die over the next two days. You said, asked, why is he listened to? Well, in one sense, we didn't have to listen to him. No one has to listen to him. We don't have to discuss it today. We could discuss the very serious problems that he is causing in this country today. It has been chosen as a topic of discussion. So you say, why we listened to him? I suppose because you chose to, because you chose to speak about it today. We don't need to. Uh, Prince Harry got invited to the UN General Assembly. That's up to the UN General Assembly. I wouldn't have had any, had any idea about that today. But I know that we face a severe problem in this country today, tomorrow and in the years to come. But he's also talking about climate change, though, isn't he? So he's talking about the environment. Right. So, so, so if you, you've just talked about and said that this, we're facing this big crisis and somebody like him has highlighted it, so surely me telling you about it and us talking about it is, is good for the cause, is it not? Well, no, because I think it's good for the cause discussing why is it we're in this problem, why we've had the 10 hottest years on record well, since 2002. And the reason that is because of climate change. And I would say that people would feel where, that where in any case. Where do you have case. that information from? I take I mean, it what, from what, the what, experts, from, as you would say, the international panel well, but on you know climate what, change. But, I would take it from the Net Zero Committee. I would say from the consensus across science, 99% of papers on this issue find man-made climate change is a cause. But, it is yeah, a yeah, but, 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 but how much we're actually impacting on the climate, and especially specifically in this country, I, I think is negligible. But I thought, we, I thought that there was a, an aspect of that discussion which was fair to ask you and I, Jeevan, which was... Let's let's take your premise and, and agree that, um, as he put it, although I think this invites people to challenge you and get down all manner of conspiracy theories, let's say the science is settled and it's not up for debate, the kind of rhetoric people produce. The question, I suppose, was, is Prince Harry actually a good spokesman for it? Mm. Or does he harm that cause? Right? If you want to advance that agenda, in my view, someone who chose to leave this country and comes back when he likes, not for the death of his grandfather, but, you know, for some celebrity appearances, someone like that is actually a bad spokesman for an agenda. And if you believe, as I, I see you, you passionately do, and I respect that passion, if you believe in that issue and in that agenda... Don't you look at that and think this is a bad champion for it? I don't think he is a spokesman for climate well, change. Well, he I think, he well, he was invited... Just on the stage at the UN. But he's I would say this now. as well. When I see the problems of climate change, I see the problems of climate change being people around us. You want people to speak about it. I expect everyone who goes home tonight will speak about how hot it is and ask why that is. They would ask why we are seeing more extreme weather events. I myself used to work in East Africa in Somaliland, the most severe drought in living memory I was there for, when infant mortality sprite. The spokesman then for climate change wasn't Prince Harry. It was those people who unfortunately died. Yeah, they were still what, dying. But, but they don't have a platform. And I'm stage. saying that. Yeah, but they don't have a platform on stage. Listen, I'm not defending Prince Harry because I think that it's, it's woeful and he shouldn't really. I don't like the fact that he gets involved in these. But from what you said, I'm picking up that when you have somebody like that who is bringing attention to an issue that you feel passionately about, I would have thought that you would be thinking this is a good thing. Well, I think anyone who can bring attention to it. But my other view is that actually Prince Harry being there or not being there wouldn't have made any difference. I don't think, for example, if Prince Harry had not spoken up at the UN today, or indeed had we not discussed it today, people wouldn't have been talking about climate change. People wouldn't have been talking about that because everybody tried is, but, and suffered. But is talking about weather. the weather the same? Is talking about the weather the same as talking about climate change? I think we are starting to have this discussion. I think one thing I really welcome today was when you look at the BBC News's coverage, they said this was the result of man-made climate change. No, but hang on, was but great that's to a kind very wide... But you see, that is a very wide thing to say, that this particular weather is specifically because of man-made climate change. But, because the climate would probably change in any case. I don't know how much impact man has on this changing of it. And to, 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 I think that's a very broad brush. If they actually said that, that's incredible. Because I, 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 I don't think that anyone could 100% prove that that 
is why the weather is this way. How could anybody actually prove that? Well, look, if I was trying to do the comms of climate change, I might, one, not think about Prince Harry as my advocate, and two, I wouldn't go around with headlines saying, this is the first time we've ever used this ultra-extreme heat warning, mm. when it was actually only introduced last year by the Met Office. So there's all this suggestion that it's this incredible new once-in-a-lifetime red-hot-button kind of DEFCON one-and-a-half experience. And actually, they only introduced it last year, mm. and people aren't stupid. You know, people can realise it's very hot. People can indeed realise that it may well be informed by man-made climate change. But if you tell them this is the, the worst ever and it's the first time we've ever had to use this warning, and then they realise you introduced that warning system last year, it reduces their trust in it completely. And also there are scientists who might say something slightly different to you as well. And a lot of those scientists that you're talking about are possibly funded by people who ultimately they're going to say that there's climate change. I find it quite strange because on the one hand we start this conversation saying why is Prince Harry uh, invited to speak when he's not an expert? And then when the actual experts from the huge majority of consensus comes forward, you then say no, they're not experts at all. I didn't say that. No, 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 that, that's not say. true. I did not say they're not experts at all. That's, a, that's not what I said. You've actually changed my wording to suit to suit what you're trying to say. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that some experts say that, but not all of them. I'm saying and, that and so, what, and I, so I'm saying that the premise that you've set, that it's definitely man-made climate change, I'm saying you cannot say that, you cannot prove that. We have Because nobody, more... there are those who would not agree with you. So I'm saying there are two sides to the, to the When 99% of people are on one side, 1% on the other side, I think actually you end up moving towards the 99%. Well, you can. That's where the you're welcome to, is. but there is a 1% and, I'm saying and there's this as a well. different... The thing about kind of this specific weather event, what we are seeing is more extreme weather events coming time and time again. Ten mm. of the hottest years on record since 2002. These things aren't a coincidence. We're seeing these droughts happening time and time again. Yes, but perhaps the, the climate... But I'm saying that perhaps the climate might change in that way anyway. You don't know that it wouldn't. So you saying that it's definitely man-made climate change, you don't know whether the climate would have changed. And this climate, this uh, climate has been through different... We've had an ice age, we've had this, we've had that. There are so many different ages. We don't even understand. So for you to say that, oh, yeah, it's definitely man-made, I think, well, the climate may have gone in this direction anyway. Well, there are elements of it that obviously naturally would occur. We may have some influence. How much we have, I don't know. Yeah, we had a medieval warming period and people thought the climate was changing because of their sin. Mm. I mean, you can get very metaphysical about it. But I accept that the, I accept that the majority of the science definitely points towards uh, man-made um, action affecting this. Yeah. My, my, my dual point is that when you say to people it's not up for debate, then, you know, the, the kind of irritated side of you will always say, well, what, who are you to tell me I can't debate? And the second thing is I just think if, if you do want that message, they're not selling it at all well. Mm. Yeah, final word to you, go for it. Well, look, I think we are clear where we are sitting in terms of these man-made events. I think it's clear we have to address it. And I think this is an existential crisis that faces us. And I'm looking, well, I hope today that our politicians' day do try and address it. And I think last night, again, we didn't see in that conservative leadership debate a huge focus on what we need to do. Well, it'll be interesting because uh, if, if, if it's to believe, be believed, which and there, and there is debate on the subject, if it is to be believed, then the amount of CO2, which apparently is causing this, that we emit is very minimal in comparison to other places like so-called China. But however, we do offset our CO2 to these places as well. So... I don't know what the answer is here, but I, I, I can't see that changing anytime soon. So perhaps this is the status quo and this is how uh, the climate will be because we exist on this planet. Right, well, lots of you have been getting in touch. Let's see. Now, earlier, we were talking about... Uh, what have we got here? With climate change, Roger says, can you end my delusion and point me to the evidence that human activity is the cause of climate change? There's others who will question it. Patricia, uh, in, Patricia, Patricia, in 1976, we had the same temperature. That's from Patricia. Rosie says, today is not as hot as it was 
It, but that's, apparently that's not true, though, but that's what Patricia said. Uh, Rosine uh, said, today is not as hot as it was in the summer of 1976. Another one saying that, um, when I guess was not alive. Were you alive in 1976? I was not, no. Oh, I was. I know, you're going to say I don't look that old. No, you look younger than me and I was born in 79. Look at that, he's on it. You, you on the other hand, my friend. <laughs> right, and on, on, uh, on Harry, Rob says... A white man from a very privileged background, back in the real world, Mandela's legacy, the ANC, has bankrupted the once most affluent country in Africa. South Africa is on the verge of becoming a failed state. Why isn't this being discussed? So, good question. Well, I, I loathe... I imagine many South Africans struggling for freedom under apartheid will loathe the idea that the climax of recognising Nelson Mandela's achievement is a minor royal taking to the stage at the United Nations. I mean, what, what a wonderful uh, notion that might be. Instead of all of the black leaders they might have had celebrating Nelson Mandela, the idea that it's ha Prince Harry is, is the guy to, to get on board for it. I mean, honestly. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mary says, uh, can you explain to me why an unemployed ex-royal married to a Z-list actress is addressing the United Nations? Well, that was the question that we started with. Nobody's come up with an answer. But one thing's for sure, I actually do agree with Jeevan. We shouldn't give him the oxygen of publicity. But talking about climate change is far more interesting. Across England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. This is GB News. Right, fancy earning up to £100,000 a year? Well, applications are now open for an NHS Director of Diversity, Equality and Inclusion. Yes, that's in the north of England. The new position is part of a big NHS shake-up. The government is launching its plan to bring different care providers together as part of an integrated care system. Now, these include NHS trusts, local government and even the voluntary sector. But why is this job needed? I mean, surely, I mean, surely money should be spent elsewhere. What do you think? Let's uh, go to my panel. Let's find out for you, Alex. Diversity inclusion is somewhere between, I think, it's £97,000 to £108,000. Yeah, I'm looking at the job, I'm looking at the job yeah. spec. For a mere £108,000, mm -hmm. uh, you'll be asked to undertake... Um, supporting the Integrated Care Board for the North West and North Cumbria, uh, based in Sunderland, if you're interested. Um, it, it seems to me that the biggest employer in our country is always going to have some waste within it, and mm. it seems almost unfair to point at a system that's trying to do its best. And, you know, people treat the NHS like it's a religion. It's not. It does some things well and some things badly. And the more we do and have an honest debate about that, the better. But anyway, my point is, it's bound to have some waste in it. The problem is that um, once you've got these jobs, they do things. You can't just not do something. I mean, if like it was just what? What this, 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 that's my, they have to have initiatives. They have to have guidelines. They have to have uh, issue uh, new requirements for people, and, and that they've got to learn. And they've got to li issue lists of good words and bad words. Normally, the reverse of words where words were before. Uh, there'll be, of course, one of these in each of the relevant NHS areas. So, if people are thinking, so what? It's only a hundred grand. If that's someone's worldview, uh, don't worry. It's multiples of a hundred grand because mm. this is only one small NHS yeah. area. It seems to me the NHS might better advise not to have these kinds of roles. Yeah, it seems... Uh, in my view, when it comes to this sort of job uh, and any state involvement, as soon as something is run or owned by the state, it's almost any sense of business goes out of the window. And suddenly, I mean, if this was a private company, this wouldn't be happening. Yeah, but in the private sector, we'd very often be... Yeah. People would we say that diversity, equality and inclusion should be baked into 
everyone's jobs, exactly. such that it's the job of senior leadership to undertake uh, these Absolutely. things. And actually carving this out to say, don't worry about DEI, that's taken care of over there with our 100 grand person. Now I don't need to worry about it anymore. That's probably the wrong approach. I, th I think it is. But what do you think, uh, Jeevan? Well, I think actually we should ask them why it is the case. We do know there are huge issues in terms of the NHS in terms of the ways it deals with diversity. We know that during COVID, doctors were far more likely to die they are an ethnic minority. We know that ethnic minority front work, front line workers well, are I... less likely to be issued with PPE, mm. with that black women are four times more likely to die in childbirth and pregnancy. It strikes me there are some huge issues here. I, now, think, I, no, think, hold on. I, I, I just think have to stop ask. you with some of the things that you said there, because uh, first of all, with regard to uh, a lot of black people dying, there was something that uh, they discovered about the pulse oximeter. Uh, now, this is a device um, that they clipped on someone's finger to work out their blood oxygen. And unfortunately, on dark skin, it doesn't actually work very well. So it might make a reading as though you, you've got a lot of oxygen when your oxygen levels are at a very serious level. And that was something that came out in their research after they found out why a lot of black people were dying uh, throughout COVID. So that was oh. one, of the, one of the variables that was involved in that. And also a lot of those people as well uh, were closer to the patients, obviously. Uh, but I, I, I don't see the connection with why you need a diversity and inclusion officer. Well, this is, this is the question they should answer, right? It wasn't just about that. It was also about frontline workers with ethnic minorities less likely to be offered PPE and also doctors of the same grade being more likely to die. Now, I'm not sure exactly what role the pulse oximeter plays, but I suggest it wouldn't be the whole explanation. And, you know, you asked the question why it should be there. To be honest with you, I think you should ask the NHS Trust why they're there. Why are they appointed? Well, we're paying for this. So right. our, our taxes are paying for the NHS. And whilst I respect, and you know, the NHS, I see it as a very wasteful organisation, actually. And, I, and the amount of waste, we are paying extra for our, for our national insurance to cover the backlog and costs of care for COVID and also for social care moving forward. Now, if for every, you know, 40 quid, uh, they put in 20 pounds from everything I earn, but 10 pounds of that is wasted on things like diversity inclusion officers and things like uh, bad procurement in medicine at a ridiculous price, then I'm not so happy about paying that. I just don't see why they're doing this. Well, I suppose the question is, was did anyone contact the NHS Trust involved and ask why they have a diversity inclusion officer? Was there a question to the NHS Trust put today by the GB News newsroom asking them, why is it you have this role and why yes, is it there necessary? Was. And yes, what was the was. response? Well, I, I'm going to have that we, we do have a response. What was there a response? We're going to get the response for you. Uh, we'll give you that response in a moment. That would have been my statement a little bit further up, but we'll get that ready because you asked the question Thank at you. the wrong time, obviously, but that's fine. It's a fair question. Um, and I think it's a reasonable one to ask. And they may, may have a, a very good explanation. So I think it's reasonable to canvas it. But my, in my view, seeking to work out what is in patients' best interests, which was where that discussion between you two started, mm -hmm. is a qualitatively different discussion to a role that is meant internally, both basically, you don't know what you two think of this, but employing someone who in the end is going to find new ways of calling their workforce racist and or you know, having unconscious bias that means you need some training. Because, you know, if everything's OK, then there's no point in your job. Yeah. Right. So you've got to find problems. And the problems imply that people are basically racist in one way or another, uh, whether they be hardworking doctors and nurses or something else. Mm. And so that's what justifies your role. It seems to me that trying to work out what's in patients' best interest in treatment and so forth is different from that kind of internal deliberately self-lacerating um, attempt to seek to tell people that they are bad. And the part of the reason I say that is that we have told people since time immemorial in this country that it doesn't matter where you come from, that your gender doesn't matter, that uh, your, your colour doesn't matter, you, you will achieve and you'll be judged on merit. And now, at least in our best moments, we've hoped for that to be true. Mm -hmm. And now, for the first time in society, one of the dominant narratives in politics 
is that that's wrong. Is that we need to judge people, or we need to say that you are innately your colour, you are innately your gender, you cannot trans transfer on the others, yeah, and you will be judged innately and primarily on those things. Well, I think that's for the birds. I, I, I'm, in, I'm in agreement with that. I think it's actually the diversity and inclusion is almost perpetuating this narrative of separation, and actually it creates an exclusion. I think we need to stop doing this. We, it needs to be just a natural progression that we are employing people based on the content of, of, of their character, as in what they can do, rather than, oh, because they're black or they're this or that, and we need to start focusing on that, rather than getting somebody on board who's going to make sure you've got somebody who's disabled, make sure you've got somebody who's this, make sure you've got somebody who's that. There needs to be a, that needs to go. All of this needs to go. I would agree that we shouldn't judge people on the colour of their skin, their content, their character. Again, though, I have, you know, the only thing I can see here is kind of this job advert. And I can see why, for example, we look at some of the racial disparities in care. We look at some of the racial disparities in outcome. Why it is you may want to have someone like that. I'm not exactly mm. sure uh, what the rest of it is. I suppose that's for the relevant NHS trust to, to speak on. Mm. Right, well, let's find that statement for you. Let's see, because you asked me the question uh, about why... Um, where is the state? Right, oh, it's on here, let me see. Uh, integrated Care Board funding comes from the... I think this is the statement here. OK, so uh, Anne Levity, we've got Integrated Care Board funding, comes from NHS England. Anne Levity, the Executive Chief People Officer of North East and North Cumbria Integrated Care Board, she said this, the funding for this role fits within the current budget allocation that we get. And as a result of restructure, an opportunity has allowed us to create this very important role within the senior leadership team. So she's got the money for it, basically. I mean, that, that again, that, I mean, that, OK, I respect that uh, we've got that statement now, but for me, if you got the money for it, that money could be going, I would be looking at paying more training for nurses, I'd be putting that money in improving waiting lists in some way, or I'd be putting that money into something else. I just don't think it's the best place to be spent in that way. I suppose the question for the NHS trust in question, like, why is it they believe this to be the case? And I think it's something that, like, kind of, they would be best place to answer. I certainly can't sit here and say, well, what hiring decisions do and don't make sense. I'm quite... Do you think that quite... the diversity inclusion roles are a good idea, though? It depends on the situation and circumstance. I can't evaluate yeah, I, an outside organisation from a... I agree with you that the decisions on these things are context-specific and whether they're good or not depend on the reasons. But what we just got there in the statement is actually circular. Mm. You know, we have the money and we're, we're going to do it. it. And that's actually no justification at all. And the point with the national healthcare system, just like anything else, is that you only have a finite budget. That which you take out of pot A is not going to go into pot B. Mm. And that's twofold. First of all, that's money that isn't going into frontline services, into medicine and so forth. But the second thing is that when people see spending like that, some will resent spending on the NHS per se. Mm. And when spending on... People will always argue that spending on the NHS isn't high enough. And I understand that, the, the, the passion that drives that, that belief. But when the NHS spending is already at the highest level it's ever been, some people are going to look at their tax burden, look at what we spend on the healthcare system and say, well, if it's going to this sort of thing, I disapprove of it. And it's a bit like the discussion we were having before about Prince Harry. This tarnishes the brand beyond just the thing. People don't look at this and say, oh, this is just an, a, a, an officer in the northeast of England. They say bureaucracy. And they say, ah, oh, to hell with the NHS. And if you're going to defend it, you're going to have to do better than that that's, statement. That's a very weak statement, Anne, Annie. Uh, Annie Elavity, she's the Executive Chief People Officer. Did you hear that? She's the Executive well, Chief People Officer. That means HR, and she was put on the spot, and yeah. good for them for responding rather than Well, not. at least she responded. I have yeah. to say that's good, but uh, the response isn't good enough, really. And I think a lot of people were thinking, well, just because you've got the budget, it's almost like the sort of thing that the council do, where, oh, we've got a bit of extra budget, let's dig up a bit more road to make sure that next year we get the same amount. Uh, that, that's, that's what that smacks of to me. Um, perhaps the NHS needs to start refocusing 
on, on rather than having these separate trusts, because that's one trust, there'll be another trust doing probably something similar, and that's, as you said, 100,000 mm. replicated for however many trusts there are in this country, and I don't think we can afford it. I have no idea what their trust hiring policy are. No, I didn't think you did have. <laughs> I didn't think you would have. Well, should, we, should we squeeze in Rwanda? Sure. Well, actually, sure. I might have a few. I, I've got a couple of people uh, saying things here, actually, so I'll read... Um, uh, let's see what we've got. Uh, Tony, Tony, about the NHS. He says, what a shame none of the candidates are talking about cuts to public spending. The colossal waste in the NHS is appalling. When the government raised national insurance, did anyone think that would go on diversity and inclusiveness training and consultants on over 100k per annum? I don't think so. Uh, Gordon says, uh, and this job is why I'm paying more national insurance. This is just disgusting. Uh, Phil says, your view on the NHS is spot on. Treat it like a sacred entity. The, uh, it, it, it is beyond question. It's fatal to its longevity. You have to hit the nail on the head and questions always need to be asked. Uh, Janice says, no wonder the NHS are struggling. They should concentrate on healing sick people and perhaps they'd be more respected and appreciated. And uh, Colin says, I will never support the NHS whilst they have woke diversity officers. Absolutely ridiculous. Now, um, Steve says, a nurse with a degree and training gets 325,000... Is that... Uh, three, uh, 325,000... Uh, no, 32,500 uh, for a lot of work, which is very unpleasant. Somebody with a, an ugly degree gets 100 grand for this job. It's a joke. And uh, fine, I'll do Alan. Alan says, diversity officer, utter waste of time and money. Blue, black, pink, yellow, green. It's the best person of the job, not colour or ethnicity. And uh, somebody who says actually this, Billy, I've got to do the reverse, because somebody says, Billy says, there is nothing wrong in paying a director 100k a year as long as they work for it. It's down to recruitment and results. If somebody magically sorts the NHS out and they're exceptional at their job, that is priceless at the moment. The guy saying that they are good at things and bad at things, welcome at human beings. 100K is nothing for a champion who actually gets a grip on things. Well, that didn't make much sense to me, so I don't know what you're saying, but uh, thank you for that, Billy. <laughs> what was Billy saying? Was he saying it's a good thing? Uh, it would appear so. Mm -hmm. 100 grand diversity and inclusion. If they were going to have it, how much would you, would you be prepared to? I, I don't know. I think, it's, I think that the fair question is more about whether these roles should be baked into people's positions per se. And I completely understand why someone would look at this and say, that's basically, even if one you think about the obligations of a pension and so forth, that's basically three starter nurses. I think that's a reasonable way to look at it. Well, fair enough. And just on climate change, uh, just to come back to you about climate change, uh, Mark says, of course, 99% of scientists agree about climate change. Any scientist that doesn't agree gets censored. Well, that's an interesting way to end it on Sue. Quickly then, the climate zealots won't hear anything against their options. Climate is cynical, cyclical, she says. Right, well, that's, uh, that's what they think. Thank you so much for all your thoughts. Thank you very much to my panel, Alex Dean. Thank you, Alex. Thank you very much. And also Jeevan Sander. Thank you so much. And if you missed any of today's show or you want to catch up on previous episodes, you can always download the GB News app. It's all free. It's available on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Just search for Dubes & Co. I'll be back again actually on Friday. Nigel Farage is on the way next. Hello, it's Aidan McGiven here from the Met Office. It's been a very hot start to the week and it's going to get even hotter. Tuesday marks the peak of this extremely hot spell. Red warning enforced because these temperatures are unprecedented, record-breaking for the UK. 
and we're simply not adapted to this kind of heat, both by day and by night. The hot air extending across the whole of the country, which means that overnight temperatures won't dip very far at all. Even though there'll be clear spells for many, there'll be a few showers for the northwest of Scotland, some patchy cloud elsewhere, but otherwise clear skies and temperatures in some spots holding up in the mid-20s, and if that happens, it'll be the warmest night on record. So we start off Tuesday already with temperatures in the 20s and quite quickly with widespread sunny skies, those temperatures will shoot up. I think in some places by 10am we'll already be in the mid 30s of Celsius and it's only going to get hotter. The heat intensifying across southeast Scotland into northeast England, central and eastern England with temperatures widely here 38 to 40, perhaps 41 Celsius. Exceptionally high, unheard of temperatures. It is going to be cooler towards the southwest compared with Monday and Northern Ireland also seeing lower temperatures. The air is starting to cool down. We're going to see that big change on Tuesday night as an area of showers moves through and then those showers clearing the east for the start of Wednesday. Clear spells overnight, some wet weather pushing into western areas by the end of the night but a more comfortable night for sleeping, although it won't be especially fresh. We're still looking at lows widely of 18 or 19 Celsius. A fine start for many on Wednesday, certainly a cooler start compared to recent mornings. Some showers around in the west first thing, those will push east. And actually it is another hot day in the east of England, Lincolnshire, East Anglia, 30 Celsius still possible. That could spark a few showers or thunderstorms by the afternoon. More typical weather for the UK on Thursday and Friday, bright spells, showers, mid-twenties at the highest. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Kerr, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.